From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. And a very warm welcome aboard the pirate ship at the Reeve Gauche and to the Captain's Table podcast, brought to you by Are You Not Entertained and our great friends at Loch Lomond Whiskies. I'm Giles Morgan. I'm not actually a captain, or indeed a pirate. But a vague ancestor of my family, Captain Henry Morgan, actually was one. And his family all came from Wales as well. For 30 years, I have been lucky enough to travel all over the world as a boring old marketing suit in the sports industry, which included having arguably the best job in the world as head of sponsorship at HSBC. Along that journey, I got to rub shoulders with the good, the bad and the ugly from the world of sport. And having ditched the pinstripe suit for breeches and the red waistcoat and cutlass that befits a pirate captain, I set out to create this podcast where every fortnight I simply ask my special guests from the world of sport to share their own personal memories of being a sports fan and how that passion has affected and shaped their lives. And ahoy there, my hearties, and welcome back on board my pirate ship, the Reef Gauche, and for another episode of The Captain's Table. I'm the captain. I am pleased to say that my guest this month is another from the Palace of Sporting Royalty. Brian Habana is simply one of the greatest rugby players of the modern era. Of any era, in fact. And with 124 caps for South Africa and the second highest test try scorer with 67 tries, he also played in three World Cups, was IRB Player of the Year in 2007 and was part of the Victoria Springbok series over the British Lions in 2009. And he ended his very illustrious career at the French club side Toulon, where he won three European Cups. He's kind of done it all. And thankfully, he retired in 2018, providing a welcome respite to defenders all over the rugby world. I can hear his winged feet on the gangplank right now. So let's welcome him to the captain's table. Brian Habana, welcome on board the Reeve Gauche and to the captain's table podcast. Pull up a chair and make yourself at home. Thank you, sir. It's uh, très beau de te voir de de voyage de rive gauche. Uh, je pense que c'est c'est ah. les langues françaises ou pas? <laughs> non, c'est anglais uh, aujourd'hui. But 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 very good. Your days at Toulon have clearly <laughs> served you very well. You're you're a native. Now, attention, uh, all the cats and dogs and parrots that are all over the boat. They may trip you up. Um, and you're very welcome on board. And I need to get you a drink, obviously, because that's what pirates do. Um, but we don't drink rum on this boat. Um, we drink um, whiskey because Loch Lomond very kindly stocked the bar for us, which is a kind of single malt thing. Um, I know you're not a big whiskey drinker, but if we were to force it down you, how would you have your scotch? So I probably have my scotch. I'm not quite sure they have these over in the UK, but they have these incredible ice makers that makes this massive ice ball. Um, sort of on that with, um, I wouldn't say that. It would be one shot with some water. I definitely go... 
big, big, big bowl of ice, big ball of ice uh, with some water, definitely, sir, for me. Not neat. Okay. Well, we'll get Paul, the, the steward, we'll sort that out for you right away. Um, now, Brian, as you know, the purpose of this uh, this show and our, our journey together is I want to find out a little bit about Brian Habana, the sports fan, not Brian Habana, the mercurial rugby player, because I think there's probably been more written about you than many athletes in the entire rugby world with your extraordinary achievements on the field, but maybe less so about kind of what makes you tick off the field. And I know you're a fan of sport. And do you remember as a young boy growing up in South Africa, what your earliest sporting memories were and what, what kind of was the magic that made you think that you wanted to just get into, into sport? Captain Giles, sports has been a part of my life. Even before I was born, I think being named after Brian Robson and Gary Bailey, two Manchester United sporting legends. Um, I mean, it was it was there in my in my DNA even before I entered this amazing place that we call the world. Um, but yeah, it's really been a part of you know my everyday life, and you know wanting to be a soccer player, um, never losing an athletics race. When I losing one athletics race at school. And the only reason, I think it was when I was like six or seven, the reason I actually lost was myself and my one mate were making a joke on the start line and we started later than everybody else. I think I came second. Um, but it's always been a part of, you know, my genetic... Do you remember the name of... Do you remember the name of the little no, boy? No, I don't remember the name of the little boy. Because um, he's got bragging rights. He's got bragging well, rights. Well, I don't remember the... No, it, it got a little bit worse in, in high school. I, I started losing a little bit more, so I needed to learn a little bit more about myself. But I, I just remember myself and my brother Bradley. I mean, we, we do the... Um, it was still WWF back then. You know, I'd sort of be from Hulk Hogan to the ultimate warrior and he would be the undertaker or triple H. Um, and sport was, you know, something that I gravitated towards and um, whether it was watching athletics, you know, watching soccer or, you know, seeing my dad enjoy rugby. So it was always something a part of it. And I think because of that gravitational call that it's always had, I've just been a huge fan of sport because it is just so inspiring to, to watch, to, being encapsulated by and yeah like i say knowing the importance that is played in south africa um has made it just that much more resonate with you know what i'm all about were you lucky enough to go to sporting events as a kid were you taken to to, to sports to football to rugby to cricket whatever it might have been so i was born in the apartheid era in south africa um where things were obviously very different to to what they are now so you know being born in 1983 apartheid only sort of ending you know towards the latter part of the 80s or in, in 1990 and south africa only really becoming a democracy in 1994 when we had our first democratic election so my first real memory of coming together from a sporting perspective was being taken out of school for the first time ever and my dad um, taking me on a road trip down to Cape Town to watch the opening game of the 1995 Rugby World Cup where South Africa took on the then world champions Australia um, and I got to experience really the power of sport and got to a stadium where the crowd was 90 odd percent white um, you, you seemed very odd and out um, because of the color of your skin but just seeing how through sport, a country started getting united. You know, we sort of went on a road show where we got to the quarterfinals where Chester Williams famously scored the four tries against Samoa. Um, as a family, we jumped back in the car the following week to drive down to Durban to see the rain-drenched semifinal. 
that the French still believe they won. But according to Quibus Vesta, they went sideways, uh, they went up, they went down, but they never went backwards in that scrum on the five-meter line. And Captain Giles, I was one of the fortunate few 60-odd thousand to be at Ellis Park that day when Nelson Dela walked out in that number six Springbok jersey. A very white South African crowd was chanting Nelson, 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 and got to witness probably one of the most iconic sporting moments in the history of sports. And those words of Francois Pinot that it wasn't for the 60,000 in the stadium, it was for the 48 million South Africans, you know, resonated with a then 12-year-old boy um, that really started fully grasping at the power that sport has. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't exposed on a constant level to sport before then, but 95 was without a doubt a watershed moment um, in, in my sporting, you know, fan perspective because when you're a part of something so powerful, um, it definitely sets some wheels in motion. And was that then the moment that you knew that if you were, I mean, you were obviously a quick youngster, et cetera, but did you think at that, I mean, I, I was at that final as well. And, and you're right that there, there are not many sporting events that have such, such a huge impact in the world. I remember when that plane went over the stadium just before the, the, the game. I mean, that kind of set everything going. Do you think that was a trigger for you going, I want to be part of this. I have seen something that is very, very special, which is I want to play for my country now that I'm able to, but also send me on a road. Do you think it was a trick? It was a massive watershed moment. No, it was a mess. I mean, up until that point, I was, and I'd never played rugby prior to that. I just wanted to be the next South African export into the English premiership as a footballer, you know? So I had no even remote um, indication that I wanted to do rugby. And you get to experience heroes to get experience how sport really can be a language to children that they understand um, no matter what the color of your skin no matter where you're from and i grew up privileged which is different to many you know people of color in south africa so it wasn't that i didn't want to play rugby it was just rugby was never a thing for me and that moment sort of made me think ah this is maybe something that has a lot of potential and obviously I had certain elements of being quick. I was absolutely minute. I'm not quite sure what, how big the, the cats and the crows and all the animals on board, the Rive Gauche, are, but I was probably as small as all of them. Um, so all of a sudden, <laughs> having never played the game before, not being able to pass with my left hand, you know, went to King Edward the Seventh School with this massive ambition of becoming an immediate Springbok rugby player. Only for my... <laughs> my very ambitious manner to be easily doused by playing my first ever game of rugby for the under 14 G side at King Edwards, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, but it wasn't about the team I was playing in. It was being inspired a year previously to play this game that had brought the country together uh, at a time in its very young democracy um, where we use the power of sport to show the potential that South Africa has. So, Many boys post that 95 Rugby World Cup dreamt about becoming a Springbok. I mean, I had no idea what the next 12-year process was going to be like or the next nine-year process, but it was just being able to do this that I now absolutely loved um, and having a ball for then 60 minutes with my my mates. Um, and that continued throughout the, the course of my high school career. Who were your um, sporting heroes 
growing up? Who was on your poster on the wall of your of your room? Who who were your? I mean, you, you yeah. mentioned football. You're named after mm-hmm. Manchester United footballers. You love football, and and then there's the rugby thing. Who who were your kind of idols? I guess so. <laughs> It was pretty funny. And again, like, we were always exposed to sport. So you know, I think the cricketing heroes of 92, that infamous John T. Rhodes dive in Pakistan. Um, and I played a little bit of cricket. So, you know, John T. Rhodes was someone, you know, you, you gravitated towards. There are thousands upon thousands of hopefully young boys and girls in South Africa that will tell you there was, we have a local magazine called the U Magazine that had a centerfold with Andre Joubert, James Small, and U.S. Van der Weisheisen, um running, not naked, but without their shirts on, um, at a Springbok training session before the World Cup. And, I mean, that poster was on my wall, you know, it, until it literally started tearing apart. It was so flimsy. Um, but that 95 squad, and I, I constantly get asked, like, oh, was, was Chester Williams your inspiration? You know, obviously the Colour Association. I'm like... No, you've seen the likes of a Kubis Pista, um, a Francois Pino, uh, a Yapi Mulder. You know, the, it wasn't just one specific, Joel Stransky. So it wasn't just one specific, but again, the likes of a John T. Rose from a cricket perspective. Um, you know, back then, because of my players, someone like Carl Lewis and, and you know, the, the great Mr. Johnston uh, were, were guys that I was like, oh, that's, you know, these guys are, are doing some, some pretty things. And, and yes, there was a bit of a soccer inclination. But yeah, just was, I love sport. And you know, then WWF, I wanted to be the ultimate warrior. I told my mom, she needs to paint my face in all these different colors and I need to run down the passageway screaming and yelling and yelling. So yeah, I, I remember it vividly because it was just so encompassing in what I was about. And you know, myself and my brother would go into the garden and we'd see who was better than the other one. He was five years older, so he always had the advantage, which I don't hold against him. I eventually got quicker than him, which I can now use to my own advantage. But it was a part of our daily lives. Growing up, and you've got some amazing stadia there in South Africa, what, and you've travelled around the world as a player, and I'm sure you've now, you've retired, had the opportunity to get back to sporting events just as a humble fan. Is there a favourite sporting stadium that you just love to go to, that you just, the hairs on the back of your neck just rise when <laughs> when you see the stadium? Or uh, Is there somewhere? Yeah. Is it Manchester United? Have you been to Old Trafford? I've, I've had the fortune of being to Manchester United. I think it is extremely special. Um, I think the game we went to, they actually lost, unfortunately, or it was a, it was a draw, so it wasn't that spectacular. Are you a Man U fan? I am you a Man, Man U fan. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an avid fan at the moment. I'm probably a fair weather fan. I wouldn't support another team in the English Premiership. Um, I mean, I have Manchester United paraphernalia, so I've forced my boys to wear them as well. So they at least know who Manchester United is. My wife is potentially a Chelsea fan, but that's because of her work colleagues at university more than anything else. So Ellis Park, I think, is one of those stadia because of its history, because I've got to play there as a pers- as, a, as a player. I've got to witness 95. I've been there on, on various occasions. It's, it's a pretty special place. I think from a fan perspective, the Millennium Stadium is probably one of the most incredible experiences to be a part of. I was there as an uncapped Springbok touring player in my first tour. And I just sat in the stands and hearing the very sweet him singing um, that the Welsh portray and the harmoniousness in which they just brought that roof almost down. And as a player, you got to experience it and the deafening environment that you are then put in. 
And then I actually got to go back there when I retired. And it was just as incredible as when I went there in 2004. So that that was, was pretty special. I think, you know, a lot of stadiums globally are nice. I, I haven't really been to a lot in the States, but I still love to go watch an American football game, Super Bowl final of, of sorts. I must admit, though, getting to go to my first Hong Kong Sevens experience after witnessing it from afar for the better part of 16 years was nothing short of remarkable. Uh, the, <laughs> the beauty about Sevens, the the history and the custodians of the South Stand and what that all brings about was, was just so special. Getting served beer that was sitting in a glass in the sun, for the better part of a full day, but just seeing the South Stand go absolutely ballistic was one of the most incredible experiences. But I think for me, yeah, Cardiff Millennium Stadium, um, when it's full, when the Welsh are on song, is, is pretty spectacular. Are you an emotional fan? I mean, do you get into it? Are you, are you, <laughs> are you able to become a fan, you know, you being a player, but do, do you yell and holler? Have you cried watching the Springboks play since or anything like that? I'd like to believe I'm an emotional fan. I've, I've had to, unfortunately, tone down my emotion because my wife has very politely tried to alert me to how loud I can potentially get and how obtrusive. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be in Japan for the 2019 World Cup. And I, and I tell everybody that, you know, the Springboks winning, you know, from a South African perspective was incredible. It was the cherry on the cake. But the cake itself was, and I, I got an incredibly sweet tooth, the cake itself was the best cake I have ever eaten. And the reason I say that is, you know, the love you have for rugby, the love you have for the game that, you know, we have given so much towards. You go to an environment like Japan where it is not a top three or four sport potentially, and you see post-2015 and that really horrendous, time for me, but the incredible time for rugby and sport in general by Japan beating the Springboks in Brighton. And you see how sport really has the power to do something that no politics, no culture, no religion can actually do. And I say it was the sweetest cake I ever tasted because I got to sit pitch side with Joel Douglas when Japan beat Scotland in the last game of the round robins after having experienced a typhoon the day prior. And I literally sat in that stadium looking at what was happening. It took me back to being in Ellis Park in 95. And I just said to Joe, like, whatever this is that I'm feeling, I want to put it in a bottle and take it with me wherever I go because this is just one of the most beautiful things. And then I got to be next to Sia Khaleesi, you know, coming and getting interviewed after the, the final and was in tears, which was not how I wanted to portray myself on the international media scene. Um, so I'd love to believe I, I do get emotional. I think I have to withhold a lot of my emotion now, you know, being in the punditry environment. But, you know, I, I get into it, which I think is, is, is really beautiful. Tell me, when you're at a sports event and you're not being a pundit, um, do you have a big appetite? And if you do, at half time, if you and I are going, say, to the Millennium or Ellis Park or wherever, what's your half time? food of choice what does brian habana what's your guilty secret what do you like so you see um being south african we actually don't really have a halftime substitute we're constantly eating biltong throughout the whole game so my biltong would be taken with me uh, or bought pre-game and having matches so come halftime i actually wouldn't be hungry um i would maybe need to buy another <laughs> pack of biltong 
I was going to say, so with biltong, I've, I've tried it often and it's amazing, but it's the most Moorish thing in the world. So what could be Moorish? I find that once you get into it, you don't really want to share it with anybody. Oh, no. It just sits yeah, on your no, lap. No, no, 100%. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I've got to a point where I'd, I'd literally put it in my pocket and sneakily take it out so that no one else sees that I'm eating it. Um, and then when they ask me at halftime, oh, what are you eating? I'll just say, no, I'm fine. Um, I'm, not, I'm not that angry. Um, but yeah, biltong. And there's, so there's another type of biltong called... In English, you call it dry sausage, but it's like the direct translation is through a vors, a dry vors, um, and it's like a stick type thing, which is just as great. So between biltong and dry vors, um, yeah, I actually shouldn't be famished by halftime. Um, if anything, I should be bloated a little bit. Well, I'll see if I can borrow some of your biltong and then I won't be hungry either. That's good. Uh, this is the midpoint of the show, Brian. And um, as as you know, Loch Lomond, that little glass you're sipping out of are the well, they're the spirit of the Open Golf Championship. In fact, they're also uh, sponsors now of Pro 14 Rugby and Wigan Rugby League Club. They're doing tons in sport. They obviously like it. But I want to ask you a few questions about golf um, and you're a rugby player. First question is, do you play golf? I do play golf. Um, I play what you call army golf. I'm not sure you've heard of that term, army golf. I go left, right, left, right, left, right for the better part of uh <laughs> of 18 holes. I absolutely love it. Um, I have been playing for the better part of 20 years now. I'm absolutely crap at it. Um, and I know that. So I think there's a lot less pressure on me knowing that I'm crap at it and I'm just doing it for the entertainment and the fun. I have though <laughs> had the hair raising experience of, you know, playing with the likes of Ernie Els in a pro-am. And then I was fortunate enough again in Japan in 2019 to be a part of the Japan skins where Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Jason Day, and Hideki Matsuyama got teamed up with myself, Brian Rogerskill, Mike Tindall, and George Gregan. And all of Mike Tindall, George Gregan, and Brian Rogerskill had seen my atrocious golf at the icons of rugby just a year prior. And the cell phones were out, not because of the Tiger Woods's and the Rory McIlroy's and Jason Days of the World, but to see how badly Brian Abano was going to stuff his eight iron on the par three. Um, thankfully, it got off the ground. Um, <laughs> went a little bit further than Brian O'Driscoll. It's not quite on the green, but off it. Um, and I then proceeded. We sort of played a pairing. I was paired with the now master champion, Hideki Matsuyama. And Hideki second sunk an absolutely monster 30 odd foot of putt left to right break uphill. Um, and my, again, my emotion and my childish approach to sport. Um, literally as I was in mid air about to jump on Hideki, realizing what exactly I was doing to a guy who probably <laughs> had never expected anything but a handshake. Um, and some of the footage, <laughs> is held very dear by the one Brian O'Driscoll because of <laughs> the facial features that Mr. Mr. Machiyama um, is having with a 100-kilogram rugby player or former rugby player jumping on top of him, um, <laughs> which hopefully made for some great footage. So great that Tiger Wood actually said to Hideki on the following hole, I'm glad he didn't jump on my back because he would have broken it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my next question was going to be... Um what would make up your dream pro-am? But you've actually, that skins, I, I remember oh. the publicity very well. Oh, brilliant. You've kind of lived it. But I wonder if you were to play golf 
uh, a Sunday afternoon and you have three other spots to play with you, and this can be famous people or family or friends, what would your ultimate four ball be? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, so my ultimate four ball, and it's probably because I'm sporting mad and would just love to pick their brains. So it would definitely be Tiger Woods. Um, I mean, just what he's done for the world of golf is ridiculous. Uh, it would be Michael Jordan, um, just because not only is he a good golfer, but what he did in terms of marketability within sport is something that very few have ever been able to do. Um, and my third, who would my third be? My third would be Tom Brady. Um, and the reason I say Tom Brady, I think to see what Tom is doing at the age of 43 and from being, what is it, with the 102nd or some ridiculous draft pick to the success that he has achieved and the way he not only looks after his body, but has gone through all the rigors of the last 20 odd years and is still at his prime. And um, I mean, I, I would be letting that fall down to be brutally honest. I'm putting my, I would be putting myself under pressure on every shot. Um, I, I mean, they'd probably score, I'd probably score more than, if we were going to play medal. I'd probably score more than all of them put together potentially. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it would just be phenomenal from a sporting aspect to delve into what has made them as great as they are. Absolutely. And just going back to rugby, you played for a long, long time um, for, for the Springboks, I think 124 odd caps, something like that. And you've played a lot. You've played a lot of games. You played a lot for Toulon, etc. Who was the best player that you ever saw that you played against or with? Just the one player that you oh. went, oof, you were, you were it. Oh, that's a tough question. Or was that too difficult? No, to that's too difficult. That's too difficult. Um, there, there were so many. I mean, I got to play in some phenomenal Springbok teams. I mean, the the run we had at Toulon, you know, winning three European championships in a row. Um, so I think there's the, I mean, I'm going to, okay. So from a, a Springbok perspective, I played with a lot of legends. I think one of the most consistently successful Springboks I got to play with was Jacques Ferry played outside center. Um, myself and Jacques grew up, you know, playing rugby with each other at high school. We, you know, went on under 16, tour together and he became a Springbok at 19 years old and was probably one of the most consistent players that I'd ever come across. Um, I can't remember him having a bad game. You know, it's, it's scary. Um, and he probably deserved to play a lot more international rugby. And Alwyn Jones is now up there just in terms of the, the longevity that he's been able to have. And within within the game of rugby, particularly playing in the forwards, it's unheard of. Um, but I think, you know, one of the guys that just stood out almost head and shoulders above everyone else was Richie McCall. Uh, and I tell everyone the reason Richie is because he probably wasn't the flashiest player um, around, but every time he played against the Crusaders or the All Blacks, you know, from the Monday until the start of the, of the game on the Saturday, you'd analyze how to nullify the Richie McCaw threat. And so many people tried to get it right, yet so many failed. And I was a part of many Springbok teams and Bulls and Stormers teams that failed. And I think the success that he was able to achieve as a player, the respect that he had commanded outside of the field was just phenomenal. Um, yeah, so I mean, those three, I, I mean, I, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I just think briefly, a Victor Matfield, Freddie Dupre, um, a Johnny Wilkinson, you know, you just you 
name these names and I'm like, I sit there and I'm like, oh my goodness, I got experience. Okay, so who is the who is the player you were most scared of? Who was the hardest? Oh, Bucky Spurter. I am so grateful that I got to play with Bucky's for the greater part of my career being against him. And I'll I'll never forget I was at the Lions. I just signed to go play at the Bulls for the following year. I was 21 years old, you know, just, just come onto the South African rugby scene. And we played the Bulls at Loftus in the semi-final of the Curry Cup. And obviously there was this hot shot, you know, young guy who'd been involved in the Springbok setup. So I'd literally just met Bucky's like three weeks earlier. And I'll never forget the moment. I sort of chipped over um, the line of defense, like trying to get through it was advantage. And as I chipped over, I just got Bucky's like picking me up. And I remember being in mid-air and looking at him and he just started laughing because he knew he could have done damage, but because he knew me, he didn't do damage. And I sort of said a little prayer of thanks, of gratitude. Um, but yeah, so Bucky's without a doubt. And is there a sporting hero that you have never met, alive or dead actually, who you would love to, love to, to have met or to meet? Is there someone in your kind of, wow, that would be transcendent? Transcendental. So there's two for me. Um, the one would be Muhammad Ali. Just the manner in which he changed the way in which athletes look at the world, but also the manner in which they communicate with the world was phenomenal. Um, and then I'd love, I'd love to meet you, Saint Bolt. I think for the speed. Um, the manner in which he brought the athletics to life. Um, you know, because prior to you saying it was like this, you know, rudimentary, you focus, you're doing, and he just brought, because of his ability to just look, make it look seamless um, and run faster than lightning. But the manner in which he brought in the love for athletics was something never before experienced. So I think I've never had the opportunity, but those are sort of two that spring to mind because of the impact that it had on sport just in its totality. I've got to ask you, what was your best 100 metres time? And what is his, his, what, his 19 point something? Uh, no, so his best 100 metre time, I think, is 9.58. Um, so the difficulty thing with me is I get asked this question a lot. I got a lot of quicker after school. So I, I think I ran like a 10.9 something at school. I was a year younger than everyone else. So I used that as an excuse. But I actually got a lot quicker after school. And you never, ever run a hundred meters, you know, once you're done. So I've never timed myself since 2000, since 2000 in a 100 meter sprint. I can just say that my quickest 40 meter time is four, five, eight, which they then say would then equate to around a 10, two, 10, five. But because I never actually ran a, you know, again, it's difficult. Like, would it be a ten two? Would it be a ten five? It's sort of difficult within within that. So, I reckon at my best, and when we measured in two thousand seven, after doing like a three week sprint training course, I would have probably backed myself to run a sub ten point three. Wow. Well, you were pretty sharp, <laughs> I have to say. And that is set. That's coming from a man who's built for comfort. <laughs> Brian, we come to the part of the show now, which um, I call the captain's broadside, where I just ask you a bunch oh. of fairly random questions. Random, perfect. So, so you've come uh, on board my beautiful ship, the Reef Gouche, and we can sail anywhere in the world, kind of even landlocked if you kind of use your imagination. Where can we go together? Where Where can I take? You? Oh, I have 
so, and I don't know why, I just haven't been able to, and I couldn't go there on my honeymoon, but the Maldives is a place that I would so dearly love to visit. Um, just seeing the photos, seeing and hearing experiences from friends and family, it just seems spectacular. Um, and according to current research, it might start disappearing underwater um, if we don't start looking after our world a little bit better. So, yeah, um, I'd have to get on the reef gosh uh, a little bit earlier than expected, okay. but Maldives. Okay, well, well, we'll get the set the sails and we'll, we'll get cracking. Um, but as we get cracking, and I'm going to send you to your cabin to get changed for dinner for night one. And because night one, you're my special guest, um, you get to choose the menu. So um, what, and, and by the way, cheese is thrown in if you like cheese. So you don't have to worry about the cheese course because I always like the cheese. What is the Brian Habana three-course feast that we're going to be having tonight? Oh, three-course feast. Um, oh. Okay, so for starters, we'd have to go with uh, Springbok Kapacha. I'm not sure you've ever had some of uh, that cuisine down in South Africa. Being South African um, and relating to the meat theme, um, oh, some, uh, I'm not going to go to, I'll probably go about a seven, no, no, I'm going to go one kilogram barbecue pork ribs. Um, just to make, I mean, I'm now in the, in the latter part of my post-rugby career, so I can start eating a little bit more. And then for dessert, we are going to go with, what are we going to go for with dessert? For dessert, we are going to go for a peppermint crisp tart, which is, again, a South African, I think it's a South African speciality. Um, yeah, that would be my, my three course. Obviously, hopefully with some proper uh, red wine pairing. Um, I think starters will probably use uh, the whiskey and, you know, maybe end with uh, a harder shot of whiskey, but sort of, yeah, making some, some red wine go with, yeah, go with, uh, go with the meat is always a good, a, a good idea. Good lad, the galley staff are going to be busy. Do you want to, do you want South African red or do you want to go French red? Ooh, that's that's a tough choice. Um, oh, some of that Bordeaux. Something from France, maybe or Paul. I don't know. You have some pretty good. Nice yeah, stuff I know. We would probably we'd probably get something from from South Africa. Um, I almost want to say something. Given that we're on board and the pairing would be something like a chocolate block. Um, or one of the Lomeron's wines would, would go down extremely well. This is going to be a good night. Um, as you get changed, you, you will see that I've given you a beautiful, beautiful ensuite cabin, which comes with a power shower rather impossibly, <laughs> um, because I want you to be absolutely feeling your best for, for this very meat-heavy um, dinner. What song will the crew be able to hear you sing in the shower? What, will, what, what do you sing? Do you so I'm going to go, Stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice is back with a brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly, flows like a hawk through daily and nightly. Will it ever flow? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. Um, so yeah, that would probably be just kept in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> you are the first person who's sung their song in the shower, not in the shower. That's beautiful. And do you remember your first album? Are you a music guy? Do you love your music? Yeah, yeah. I, I love my music I, and all types of music. I don't have a specific genre. Um, I remember my first album. It was actually with... The first, and I mean, this is the, I mean, the rugby actually boggled me. I played for the Lions age group level teams at school. <laughs> and obviously it had just come out of the amateur era. So it was starting to become professional. And I got, I think it was 250 Rand in an envelope after my game. 
And as a schoolboy, um, 250 Rand back in 1998 was, was quite a bit of money, only to find out that at the end of that month, I got another 500 Rand um, in my bank account, which was even, I was like, geez, I'm a millionaire, um, <laughs> which is uh, not quite bad at the moment. But I went to go to the CD store and bought the Bodyguard album, uh, the soundtrack. Um, yeah, Whitney Houston uh, in, in that time was uh, was pretty big and the Bodyguard was, um, she said, she'll, yeah. she'll always love me. Oh, that's beautiful. And do you remember your first ever live gig that you went to? First ever live gig? Oh. I actually don't, I didn't go to one at school. I'm trying to think. I think it could have actually been at a very later stage um, in my life when I was in the early 20s. It would have been Robbie Williams at Loftus Firstfeld, which was phenomenal. Uh, what an entertainer. Yeah, well, he would have entertained you, literally. Um, and do you remember your first ever car? Oh, that's the easy one. Uh, 1400 Nissan Sentra, red manual. Um, yeah, it was a car. It got me around a lot of places um, at university. I was, yeah, I, got, I only got my license when I was, I think, 19. So I didn't get it really early, but red 1400 Nissan Sentra. And I bet you loved it very much. Oh, I mean, I'd, I'd go back there any day. <laughs> now, finally, if um, this being a pirate ship and all that, um, and we smuggle treasure, that's what we do, us pirates. Um, if we could smuggle something for you, um, on board the, the boat and and then we could bury this thing safely for you for all times. Uh, are you someone that uh, pos- to possessions means something to you? And if so, is there something that we could look after for, for all times for you? Yeah, so, I mean, you started off in a place and I was like, okay, no, my wife, and then you said we're going to dig it in a hole and that probably wouldn't go down well. So um, I am a bit of a hoarder. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I do hoard quite a bit. Oh, what would my... So my go-to, and I, and I tell everyone, um, rugby's given me some amazing memories. And normally when you do something like winning a rugby world cup in 2007, the first action that comes to mind is going to celebrate that with your teammates. If you look at the footage of 2007 and the final whistle being blown, one Brian Banner, instead of running towards his teammates, runs off the side of the field um, out of screen and goes to the closest ball boy that he could find and asks for the match ball, a, a match ball. Um, only for my very then broken friends to have no comprehension to this young French lad. And the actual ball that Fereed Dupria kicked into the stands um, comes bouncing down in front of me and holds pride of place in wow. the, the garage at the moment um, because we've just moved back into our house. But um, yeah, so from a sporting memorabilia perspective and everything you put in as a sports or as an athlete to get to that point and have that item after having literally almost been hounded by the police after the Samoa game where I scored four tries and wanted to do the same and got like five Jean de Marie around me telling me to give the ball back. So yeah, that World Cup 2007 final ball that Ferry Dupree kicked into the stands. We pretty look, special. We shall look after it very carefully. That's very cool. That's the real ball as well. Um, Brian, 
we've got to get ready for dinner. We've got uh, we've got a Springbok Carpaccio to look forward to, which I'm I'm looking forward to. There's that wonderful restaurant in in South Africa. Is it called Carnivore, which does all of the different meats of uh, of South Africa? And I think I have had it, and I'm my mouth is watering. So anyway, you've been um, a wonderful guest. You're a wonderful servant of rugby. You're also a good friend. What a pleasure um, it is to have you on board the Reef Goshen at the captain's table. Thank you, and. <clears throat> As mentioned, this is the classiest of all pirate ships, so we do do things a bit differently. So we're also going to leave you with our own special type of uh, treasure to go along with the ball, which is a bottle of the 12-year-old single malt whiskey from our friends at Loch Lomond Whiskies. Brian Habana, thank you very much indeed for coming on board. Captain Giles, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to an exquisite dinner um, as we sail on to a beautiful sunset in the Maldives. It almost sounds romantic. God bless you, sir. <laughs> Brian Habana. What a ledge. Now, for all our listeners, we're so grateful for your support of the show. And so we don't want you to leave with your cellars empty either. And so our very kind friends at Loch Lomond Whiskies are once again giving away a bottle of their delicious, scrummy, yum, 12-year-old single malt whiskey. To begin with a chance of winning this bottle, head over to their Twitter page at Loch Lomond Malts and follow the instructions to enter. From all my colleagues at Are You Not Entertained, that's Roger, Grant, James, and all the guys, and of course, Loch Lomond Whiskies, thank you for the support of the shows we make. We're really, really grateful for your time listening, your ear time. And so if you get a chance, please tell your friends about us and get them to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podfix by searching Are You Not Entertained? If you want to follow me or get in touch or hurl abuse or whatever, you can do so on Twitter at GilesMorgan71 or via email at Giles at GilesDMorgan.com. So until we meet again, make sure you keep your sails trim, your rudder pointing straight ahead and watch out for errant albatrosses. Goodbye. (laughs) 